okay. So, just to clarify, because we got this question a few times on stream, this is Albion, the 1995 game from Blue Byte, not Albion Online, or any of the other, like, five or six different Albion works that are out there. Just to be nice and clear about that. This is a RPG, and I'm going to stop there, because clarifying the rest of it is going to be a little bit strange. It's got Wolfenstein-style levels, you know, that pseudo-3D 3D thing, and then it's got top-down levels, and then it's got top-down overworld, and some of the towns are 3D, and some of the towns are top-down. And that's the format of the game. As usual, I kind of want to talk about the gameplay first. Um, I do want to mention one thing, though. This is apparently their third or fourth game, depending on how you define the dev team. They'd worked on a few games prior to this, and did some cool stuff, interesting stuff, but... Uh, this is also after The Settlers, although that was done by a different team, apparently. And about six years after this game came out, the whole company was bought by Ubisoft, and that was uh, all she wrote. I've talked recently about game design when it comes to multiple aspects of gameplay, because we've got the mechanism by which you interact with the game, the core mechanisms of the game itself, and the actual content of the game. And all three of these things are separate, and some games can have only one of these or two of these things as being good. And it's actually very rare you have a game that has all three being good. This game has all three of them being bad. So the core content isn't the worst. It's probably the best aspect of the game, and it's the only positives I gave the game. It was for the dungeon design, primarily, because there's actually some cool concepts. Um, each dungeon has its own... I don't want to say gimmick, but it's probably better to say theme. Like, it has different types of puzzles. And there's usually a section at the beginning of each dungeon which is like, hey, here's, here's a tutorial puzzle, you know, classic escalation kind of a thing, to get you used to the idea of what kind of puzzles will be in this dungeon, and then you're cool. Now, for the most part, those are actually pretty good, and there's some decent stuff there, you know, the timing puzzles, or the fact that you have to drag things into other things, or whatever, right? And they managed some pretty cool stuff with the limitations of the engine. So praise where praise is due. But then there's what is effectively the last dungeon in the game, which is the second to last total dungeon in the game. That's Camulos, which is... It's basically a Wolfenstein map, except in RPG format. So instead of those enemies which you shoot a few times and they die, you have to do an entire enemy encounter every time you see them. So there are dozens upon dozens of enemies in huge maps with lots of, of places where you can go wrong and not a lot of cool gimmicks or designs or anything. It's mostly just trying to manipulate the fire and a huge map with lots of wrong exits and tons and tons of enemies. It, it's a slog, to be simple about it. You can certainly gain a lot of experience that way and a decent amount of money, but... Uh, the, um, <clears throat> the other dungeon is the very first dungeon, or rather, what is technically the third dungeon, because everything has an asterisk in this game. So the very, 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 very first dungeon is on the ship you start on, the Toronto, which is optional. The second dungeon is in the cellar of the place you start at on the planet, which is optional. The first mandatory dungeon, which is effectively the first dungeon, is the former building, the old former building. And um, that dungeon sucks. It's, it's atmospheric. But it has enemy types that are specifically designed to not give you what you need to progress. And there's lots of them. And it's weird and confusing to navigate because the terrain is designed in a way to catch you and not really be very intuitive compared to other dungeons. There's no actual gimmick to the dungeon other than trying to deal with the mouths, which there's several ways to do. You can 
um, throw a torch at them. You can give them meat. And I think there's a third thing you can do. I forget what that is exactly. But anyways, you have multiple options to deal with those things. That's it. So there's no real gimmick or puzzle design. There's enemies that suck. And it's way up here. And you have to do this to go back to town to recover. And each time you go back to recover, remember, you're not making money. So you don't really have that much money. So that sucks. The whole thing needed a massive polishing pass. And is probably the only dungeon I would completely redo. With the possible exception of... I, like, I could live with Comulos if I had to. But the former dungeon needs to go. So that's content, right? That's the good content. Then there's the bad content, like the encounters, which... The way they design it is most enemies are really, really basic. This is old RPG style. There are three types of each enemy type. So there's like, you know, lore, lore 1, lore 2, and lore 3. These ones have more stats, and in some cases they have certain status effects they can do, like some of the, the flying, buzzing things. The higher level they are, the more chance they have of hitting you with poison or illness or insanity. That's it. That's the encounter design. There is, near as I can tell, only two bosses in the entire game. Technically three, maybe, if you want to really stretch that. But really, there's only the two bosses. The end of Camulos, which is Camulos himself, and or at least the avatar of Camulos, and the very, very, very final boss, which you can't actually beat other than by cutscene, or exploiting the game to the nth degree to actually defeat it very slowly and very carefully. That's, uh... That's it. That's, that's, that's the content. It is not only kind of basic, but it's not particularly well designed. Because even a game that has basic enemies can use those enemies in a way to be interesting. See several Zelda games, for example. But in this case, they tend to just throw enemies wherever, without a lot of thought for how those enemies or enemy types should be used in the area they're in. There's actually a specific point in the game in which the enemies the game throws at you are the, the flying dudes. The, the aforementioned flies, who can poison you and ill you and insane you. That happens at a point in the game in which they have deliberately designed it so that the town you're fighting them in does not have a healer, and the the vendor in town does not sell the items necessary to heal those those particular status effects while fighting a primary enemy type that gives you those status effects. Now, this kind of thing can be used to good effect, but here I don't think it is. Well, okay, so the content sucks. What about the mechanisms of the game? Oh, my lord, lord. So the grid-based combat is, is effectively isn't. You're limited to the bottom two rows, and that's it. And to, to explain how arbitrary and clunky this is, I'm going to need some, some assistance here. Let's assume for a moment that here's your two people, okay? So what I want to do is I want to shuffle both of them to left. So that's going to take two full rounds. Why? Well, because I can't have this person move over, because this person's in the way. So this person has to move over first. So the first round is this person moving and this person doing nothing. The second round is this person moving over one step. And remember, we're limited in a 2 by two, or a two by 6 or something like that square. So it's two rows is the point. So you can go up one and down, or down one and up one, and that's it. That's your options. There's also the fact that positioning doesn't matter at all, except for the fact of whether or not you can reach something. There's no flanking. There's no getting around. There's no avoidance. There's no nothing. There's just whether you're in the rows or not. By the way, a lot of spells in this game are row damage, and you can't leave the two rows you're in, so you can't spread out, really, in order to mitigate damage, for example. <laughs> the enemy AI is also incredibly simplistic. Advance, attack, and that is kind of it. Um... 
just yeah and then there's just all sorts of weird things like the way they do stat distribution or the way they do training or the nature of how you can gain spells and it's just it's not great but most of that is at least tolerably acceptable tolerably bad i should probably say until we get to the interface portion this is the worst part of the game by far this game could use a proper remake if for nothing else because the interface needs to be completely thrown out the window and replaced by something new this game i i do not have words to do to put this no literally let me explain this for a moment some of you have seen me be irritable some of you have seen me be upset this streaming this game might be the first time I've had viewers see me be actually irritated at a game. And I can prove this because I just stopped talking. I just stopped talking to chat and just sat there and played the game in, in effectively total silence for quite a while until I could calm myself down enough to trust myself to open my mouth. I cannot put into words how much of an aggravation it is playing this game. But I'm going to try because it's my job. There's almost no HUD information at all. This game has walkthrough-itis at its very core. So many items, you, you, you can just kind of guess what they do or how they work. There's no indication of what spells do. There's no indication of how the armor values work. There's no indication of how it calculates certain stats. It's just more of a stat is probably better. It might not be, but it might be. We're not even sure how exactly, but, you know, that's, that's all we've got. So... Uh, just interfa interfacing with the game, you have to play it, at least I had to play it like this, with my left hand on the arrow key and my right hand on my mouse, because the game is, you're supposed to predominantly play it with the mouse. Almost everything you do is mouse-based, but moving around with the mouse is just awful, so I use the arrow keys to move around and the mouse to do everything else. And this is just, I want you to just do this for like 30 hours. <laughs> just picture that for a second. Uh, there's also, in order, it violates, I said I was going to try and explain specifics. The HUD is obvious. There's just so much information that is not at your disposal and you have to go look up a walkthrough for, or a, a speed run fact or whatever, right? But in addition to that, which is easy to explain, explaining how the interface sucks is kind of hard for me. I keep saying it's like the third time I've said that. Sorry, I'm still fighting off a bit of a migraine here. There's an old style, uh, an old design philosophy that boils down to the distance it takes between the player and the action they want to take when it comes to a video game, right? Uh, this is something that was said by Sid Meier, I believe. I could be wrong. Please forgive me if I'm not that. Um, I meant to look up the quote and I forgot to. But it boils down to the idea of the fewer clicks, the better. This is one of the reasons why shortcuts exist. So that rather than having to drag, select, hit this button, and hit this button. You can hit one button, hit a second button, and then select where you want to go. Just, just to name a direct example of what I'm talking about. The, the evolution between controlling your units from, say, Warcraft 1 to Starcraft 2. It, it's a huge change between the two, obviously. But it's a lot about that exact philosophy, trying to minimize the distance it takes between the player to get to where they want to go in terms of the action they want to do. In this game, you have to double-click, right-click, click, click, hit, hit button again, and all of that is required to use one single potion. Now, that doesn't sound particularly arduous, and if that's the case, then you haven't understood how arduous that can get, especially the more you do it. And maybe this is just me. But 
when you have to go through that kind of a rigmarole, it kind of de it it encourages me not to use potions. By the way, this game encourages you to use potions because you can use potions as a free action. And in fact, several of the later dungeons, Camulos and the Toronto both come to mind, pretty much lean on the fact that you're going to walk in with a hundred potions and just chug those suckers every single round. People who are substantially more invested in this game, who know the game better than me, who had a better party, and were higher level, use that strategy for the final two dungeons. So the game kind of makes you go through this arduous process constantly, and that's just one example. In combat, you have to manually do everything. I already mentioned kind of the problem with moving, but everything else has to be done manually as well. Just moving around on the overworld map is kind of irritating at times, especially since in many cases you don't actually know where you're supposed to go, since the game at certain points doesn't really guide you, and at other points very much doesn't guide you. Uh, let me look at my notes here. The music is not good. You know, the early game hell is awful. Let me explain early game hell. I haven't talked about that a lot on my show. Early game hell, uh, so at a basic concept, it's about the fact that the first part of the game is the worst part of the game from a gameplay perspective. You know, it's like, oh, God, I'm just constantly getting crushed. I'm constantly dying to slimes, and I can't get through this frickin' dungeon. A lot of you probably know what I mean when I say early game hell. You could probably name a game that has that concept. This has one of the worst, not the worst, but one of the worst early game hells I've ever seen. And it, it arises for the same reason it usually does in RPGs. Limited tools. Most RPGs, especially, are designed around having a large toolkit. Uh, in this case, not the specific party members, their special abilities, their spells, their equipment, their inventory. You know, all of the stuff that is a tool in the player's kit in order to deal with encounters, right? But at the beginning of the game, you start off with, like, the ability to white damage and jump, to, to use a Kingdom Hearts example. And so early parts of the game tend to suck because they've designed the game around when you have all the tools. And they haven't really designed the game to accommodate the fact that you have very little to do. This game has that in spades, especially since, as I mentioned, the early part of the game goes out of its way to get you very little money. And money is mandatory for several things, not the least of which being getting the, um, getting the equipment and getting the uh, potions, which you'll be chugging all over the place. Towards the later part of the game, I was running around with 50 potions in my bag. The beginning of the game, I had 12. And those are 12 of the weakest potions, not the medium ones I was later using. And that's just because I had so little gold. And so you end up going to do multiple trips back and forth to do this thing, and that just adds to the padding factor. And this is ignoring this game has tons of backtracking and a total lack of a map in several cases. That's part of the HUD problem. And you see the overall issue. The player is given very little information to irritatingly do actions that take too long to do to encounter stuff that isn't fun to play. Now that I've shredded this game substantially, allow me to add a little proviso. I found out, um, pretty far in actually, that there are built-in cheats. Now they're kind of hidden. You have to do a secret code on a special screen, then you have to hit certain inputs in order to make them happen. But once you do, the game suddenly became fun. This is not the first time I've ever covered a game where it is cheat to enjoy it. Because I think the narrative of this game is actually pretty good. And I wanted to jump in here and mention that, in addition to the narrative being worth a damn, unlike some games, <clears throat> Anthem, excuse me, that I've covered, which are just bad, 
either bad because they didn't know what they were doing, or bad because they were trying something and had no idea what they were doing, or bad because they had a rushed delivery date or whatever. This game feels like they were actually trying to make a good game. They may have failed, but there was at least effort put in, and you can kind of tell. And it especially shines on the narrative aspect of things. Now, if you just go for the main plot, it's pretty threadbare. But so many of the NPCs have so much to say about uh, the world building is one of the biggest things. And the theme, which is the other big thing. Not a lot of character. Very, very little character. Uh, One of the things I mentioned on stream that would help to flesh it out is every time you rest, you you hit the rest screen, if there was a little bit of dialogue and back and forth between your character members, you know, or party members, excuse me, allowing them to flesh each other out both for each other and for us, the viewer. So it's not big on character, and there's not a lot of character development as a consequence, but there is a lot of world building. The plot is interesting, and the themes are well-developed, even if I'm not particularly into them. Let's talk about the plot first. Let me just run this by you. You are... This is this, this is one running spoiler territory, but this is the premise, okay? You're on a spaceship, a mining vessel specifically. It's going to a completely barren, uninhabited world that has been detected recently by probes on behalf of the DDD company, or DDT, excuse me, company. So you're here to go and operate this mining vessel and mine the hell out of that planet and get very rich, and everything's awesome. And you, on, on approach... You go down and you scan, and that's not an abandoned desert world. Look at that. Like, what do you mean? Well, look, and you see there's just vegetation everywhere. Just tons and tons of foliage and tons and tons of life and a a dense jungle and sentient sapient aliens. That's the premise. And and that is, it, it does what a good hook should do. It prompts questions. Why did the probe return the false information about this place? Why is it that there's aliens here that we've never encountered before? Later on, we find out that there's humans here, too, which is why they don't wig out about us. They have encountered humans. How the heck could this alien world we just discovered have humans on it? And so forth and so on. There's lots of questions that are prompted by the plot that allow you to have hooks to keep going because you're wanting to know, well, why? You know, it's good. It's actually good, and it is well-constructed. There's a point that's about the halfway point of the story overall, when you get back to the Toronto, which is your initial goal. And once you get back there, you find out what you think is the main plot, and it's so beautifully mundane. I love it. I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you, because I'm talking about the plot. So this is officially spoilers territory. The off chance you want to play this game for yourself. Okay? Three, two, one. Turns out, the company that sent this mining ship knew that this was a living world, but they didn't care. They were desperate for the kind of money they needed to make back on the ridiculous amount of money of uh, minerals that exist on this world. So they're just going to kind of conveniently ignore the fact that there's living people and they're going to wipe out an entire planet of sentient sapient life and all the plants and animals that live on it. That's okay. We'll just wipe out the planet. It's cool. Because we're going to make a buck on it. It's so mundane. It's so ordinary. There's this brilliant scene where you're talking with the AI, which is not an evil AI, by contrast. It's just an AI that is doing what it's told to do because the company is the actual evil here, sort of. And the AI is like, yeah, no. I mean, once the once the you know word gets out of exactly what happened here, there's going to be inquiries and there's going to be all sorts of stuff. And by that point in time, all the minerals will already be harvested. All the money will already be made. The captain who allowed this to happen will have to be uh, fired for violating the, the, the ethics and morality. And he will be the richest retired captain in the planet. 
because they're paying him off, obviously, to do the, to, to go along with this. It's brilliant. I love it. And it is so mundane that what is effectively some random bureaucrat is a planet-ending threat. I love that. I love the fact that this is just some mining company that's that's trying to make a buck, right? I keep adding asterisks to this because there's more to that, but we'll get to that when we talk about themes. We should talk about world building first because, good lord, there's a lot of it. There's the Iskai, which is a whole species of people who are... If I described them in simplicity, if I summarized, they would sound like the races from Avatar. James Cameron's Avatar, not Avatar The Last Airbender. There is a decent amount of surface similarities between the two. It wouldn't surprise me if Avatars, whatever they are, the blue-skinned aliens, were actually inspired by the Iskai. One of the most interesting things about them to me, so they live very short lives, like a 30 to 40 year lifespan. They're always in a hurry and they're always doing stuff because that's the nature of them. They also live in harmony with the world around them, by which I mean they sculpt, they use magic to sculpt and craft plants and building, uh, excuse me, plants and animals into buildings and resources so that they can live, you know, in, in homes and have shelter from the, the environment and so forth and so on. And so they, you know, their, their whole city is actually just a whole bunch of, of plants and animals, and it's effectively part of the jungle as a consequence of that. It's just a part of the jungle that's been specifically crafted, formed, hence the term former, in order to make it so that you know, they can actually live there and have things like toiletries and food and comfort and shelter and all that fun stuff. We also find out that because of their furred, heat nature, that is to say, I'm saying that wrong, it's hot in a jungle, and they have lots of fur, so they have no nudity taboo, so they just kind of wander around with whatever, usually armor, but nothing else. This Now, I'm not saying that to be sexy, because quite the contrary, the biggest rate way the nudity taboo comes in is the toilets. Now, this is such a mundane thing, but I point to this because most world building doesn't go down to the level of explaining how a particular species goes to the bathroom. In this case, there is a plant which has been specifically crafted to feed off of and distribute the fertilizer from going to the bathroom. And the plant itself takes it in a very efficient way so that the smell is practically non-existent and all the microbes and diseases and all that are taken away from the living areas and the water. So they effectively have a, a sewer system with indoor plumbing. It's just a plant. And of course, they go to the bathroom in front of everyone because no nudity taboo, as we already talked about. So it's not like you go into a room and you close the door. It's just right there out in the open in the middle of the living room. Because again, it doesn't smell either, and nobody cares if you're doing it. And there's just this whole thing that they use to, to establish the Iskai. And it's it's tons of culture and tons of back backstory and world building, and I love it. The other thing, of course, is they have these, uh, I forget what they call them. They have names for everything. They have these uh, gems, effectively. And they can connect with other people mentally through those gems and, and share thoughts. The thing is, there's also a talent they can do where they can transplant their soul into someone else through that process. Now, it's implied that doing that... Un so, th that's not just something they do. It's not just like, hey, I feel like living another 20 years. Instead, there's a whole legal and cultural taboo around it. You're not supposed to do it if you're not allotted it. Like, you get so many... Um, it's, it's Doctor Who-ish, right? You know, a doctor, you get so many extra, um, not reincarnations, what are they called? I mean, they are reincarnations, but <sighs> regenerations, that's it. You get so many regenerations and that's your allotments. It's the same kind of concept. You get to do that so many times. 
But the other thing is you can only do that with someone who's compatible. And the most compatible type of thing would be someone of your own bloodline. And so most of the people who do this do this with their own children. You know, they, they, they birth their child and then and then they beam into the child. And even that is, ignoring the obvious ways that that's horrific, that fully sentient sapient person now has to live as a child for X years until they can get to the point where they can actually be back to operating as an adult. And there's a thing, uh, doing this you know, more times than you're allotted or doing this against the rules is a horrific crime, which is punishable by death. But it's also worth noting there's some politics involved in this because the people who decide how many times you get to do it or if you get to do it at all is the council, the local political entity. And they can decide whatever they want to based on their own expediency. And it's, it's hinted that they've done this before. You get my point. I'm, I'm sorry for going in-depth into this, or rather middle, middle depth. But I wanted to really get across like a snapshot of how much world building was put into just one of the races here. There's also the Celts, which I'm not going to go fully in-depth into. But they're done as well. And there's also the Camulos, the Kendget Camulos. I'm probably pronouncing all of this wrong. Please forgive me. There's no voice acting, so I'm just kind of making up what I can based on the text on the screen. Now, the Celts, in brief, they've got this whole religious thing going on, kind of, but not really. They actually consider it, the very concept of religion, to be too organized for something I'll go into in a minute. But then you have the Camulos, who split from them. They split years and years ago to go worship their own deity, the fire deity, and they became a cult of fire-worshipping assassins. Now, they're the Sith, but simply... They have this whole regimental thing where it's very honor-based, but not in any... It, it, that's probably the wrong word. It's very point-based is what we should probably call that. If you're at this section of the, of the hierarchy, then you have the highest points, and your opinion matters most. If you're down here, then you don't have as many points. If you're down here, you have negative points, if you're a, and, and then you're just a slave at that point. They're very slave-based. Um, to give an idea of how messed up their personality and perspective is, one of their arguments is that... Someone who has high points versus someone who has negative points, right? Now, the negative points one offers a deal. If you help me, I will give you what you want. The high points person then says, oh, well, you can tell they're evil because I will not give you what you want. But you have sided with someone with negative points. Therefore, you must, you, you're in the wrong for siding with them. And... I want to stress this because they're trying to convince the party of this fact. They're trying to explain that they're in the wrong and they should just lay down and die to people who have high points rather than work with the person who's willing to work with them who has negative points because the mere fact that he has negative points means he is in the wrong. <laughs> now you see the horribleness of what you're dealing with. Someone who is willing to actually work with you. Ugh, pathetic. What? And you see what I mean about the world building. There's so much of it. But the last thing I want to talk about here, as my migraine is, is causing me some issues here, is the theme. There's a few themes, but there's really one big theme, and it's organization versus primitivism. Some people might think it's natural versus technology. That's not quite correct, um, in my opinion. There is some nature versus tech thing, but that's surface level, and that's not really getting to the heart of the matter. The, the story posits the idea that there were two deities who were crafted by the unknown god. Who is the unknown god? Well, see, that's the interesting question, isn't it? Because simply by asking that question, you are on one side of this um, philosophical debate. No, seriously. Because on the one side, you have the people who are trying to apply sense and reason and logic to things. 
to make things make sense. So merely by asking the, the question, what is the name of the unknown God, they now have joined a side because they are trying to apply their reason and logic, their willpower, their choice to reality. That's the one side. And the other, that's the organization side. And the very, the game kind of makes the organization side out to be the bad guys, which is the biggest thing I rolled my eyes out, eyes on. Because when I say organization, I mean no really. Like the very idea of using written language or having a code of laws or having a government or a society was considered organization and therefore bad. On the primitivism side of things, it's trying to go with the flow. They keep calling it the flow. You have to go with the flow. You have to roll with it. You have to do what it says. And you need to not try to define it or understand it. The unknown God is the unknown God. And that's all you really need to know about that. Anything else, if you try to apply a name to it, all you're going to do is take the living material of the idea and turn it into a dead material of an identified name. Now, this all sounds like a lot of hooey to me, to be completely honest with you. But they explain it reasonably well. And the whole thing is fascinating. Because... <laughs> I mean, it's it's the Force, right? Now, this isn't really true in the AU, the new Star Wars stuff, but in several specific works of the EU, this is how the Force was applied. The light side was all about just going with the will of the Force, letting things happen, passively accepting, and going with the flow. The dark side was all about enforcing your will upon reality, doing what you choose and making the Force bend to your will. Now, you can see why the former would kind of lean towards good people and the latter would lean towards evil people. But the reason I always liked that interpretation of the Force is because neither was actually good or evil. It was just completely, contrarily different, you know, uh, philosophies. Mutually exclusive philosophies. And it's presented in the same way here. Those who are in favor of organization are dark side. They wish to think and understand and do and enforce the will, choice. Those who are not our light side. They're just willing to go along with it and not bother to try and understand or comprehend because why bother? They also tend to lean more towards the idea of effectively just being animals rather than being people. But that's probably taking it to an extreme. And it's worth noting that they don't usually touch on either extremes. This is why I added those asterisks to the plot earlier. Because even though the plot is so mundane, it's just about a company who's trying to make some profit off of the destruction of an entire planet... It is implied at several points that this is actually a thematic battle, that the organization deity, don't ask me to pronounce it, I, I don't, I'm not going to do that. The organization deity has specifically encouraged this company to launch this mining ship at this planet as an attack on the non-organ, the primitivism, primitivism deity. And thus, this is actually a spiritual battle that happens to be playing out in a mundane format. This helps to explain what I would consider to be one of the only real plot holes here, because the idea that the company would pick this planet is something that's never fully addressed other than by this theme I mentioned. I mean, they have how many other planets that they could strip mine, and they basically were willing to bankrupt the company just to go after this one planet, so it had to succeed. Like, there's just several huhs with regards to that. And the more I thought about it, the less it made sense until I realized that the main goal was to attack the primitivism deity. And thus, at that point, it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Because they're specifically here. I mean, yeah, they'll make profit off of it, but they'll destroy Albion. And thus, victory. It is a fascinating game to discuss and talk about, and I'm curious if I will have even a single comment. 
because I'm sure most people have never even heard of this game. If you do play it, look up how to turn on the cheats. That's my recommendation. But that's all I've got. I hope you've enjoyed the beginning of the jank block. I'll see you next time.